Hello, Edgard. Hello, Gregoire. How are you doing?、Mm, very well, thanks. And you? I'm good, thank you. So today it's a little special because we are entering the end of the first season of discussions on psychoanalysis. That is correct. We've been with the audience for one year now. Yes, it's been quite an interesting journey. And to offer something a little different when we enter this phase, we decided to offer three different podcasts. Not an hour-long podcast like we usually do, but、mm-hmm. 20 minutes long or something like that. Correct. So the first podcast of 20 minutes will be about. It will be about the second session and the following ones. And then the two other podcasts are going to be about end ends of therapy. Yes. So let's go ahead.、Um, you can find us on SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook. We hope to hear from you. You can send your questions and comments to those accounts, or directly through the email discussionsonpsychoanalysis@pm.me. The links will be in the podcast descriptions. My name is Edgar Danielsen, and I am Gregoire Pierre. Welcome to discussions on psychoanalysis. With second session and the following ones. Well, usually during the second session, my experience has been that the patient is a little bit lost. They have already presented all the complaints during the first session,、mm-hmm. and now they are facing the reality of the treatment. Meaning, what do I do now? And it、mm-hmm. creates a certain embarrassment or shame that they don't know exactly what to go through. Usually, when I'm facing a patient that seems to be anxious during the second session, I try to help them understand, or at least convey the message that I understand how difficult it is、mm-hmm. by saying things like, "Now we're entering a different moment of the therapy. It seems that sometimes you don't know exactly where to go. You want to be structured, or you want to convey your message clearly, and I know it's difficult to do that in front of a stranger." We stay strangers for a while. I agree, and I would add also that between the first and the second session, sometimes I sense that people come to therapy as if they are coming to a physician.、Mm-hmm. So usually we go to our physicians, primary care physicians, or whatever specialists, and we tell them what we've experienced in in the body. I have pain here, pain there, and then we sit down and we listen to them. No, then we say fix it. Well, and we sit down <laughs> or, and we listen. <laughs> What comes first? It. Yes, exactly. No, I well, I, I agree. The fantasy comes first.、Yeah. And the thing is, when you are in therapy, the second session, you are facing the reality of the therapy. The reality of therapy. Is that、mm-hmm. the physician is not going to fix you. No, it's going to be a long and somewhat dry and painful journey. Not only that, but I think at that moment, that's probably、mm-hmm. how it feels for many patients.、Mm-hmm. Should we warn patients about the specificity of psychoanalysis? 
When I ask my patients to sign the consent and agreement, part of my consent document says that therapy is different from other health practices because sometimes we get a lot of discomfort in therapy because we remember or we are uncomfortable about what we feel in the room. So I'm trying to convey the message that therapy or psychoanalysis is not about feeling better. You put it in a written form, you don't mention it orally? Both. You write it down and you tell I, to your I patient. tell them, yeah. Okay. Sometimes remembering unpleasant events or becoming aware of feelings attached to those events can bring us strong feelings of anger, depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth. And I say there are no miracle cures, and I cannot promise that behavior or circumstances will change. But I promise to support the patient and do my very best to understand the patient and their repeating patterns, and so on and so forth. I make that clear during the first session, but it's forgotten between the first and the second session. Mm -hmm. And I sense that some of them are asking for a cure that yes. I cannot offer. I do not have any written document mm -hmm. like that, but I do say something like that because I feel like contrary to what much older analysts experienced when they started training, you actually need to explain to people how psychoanalysis might work. Yes. In a, You can't know, of course, how an analysis or therapy is going to go yes. in details. Every psychotherapy, mm -hmm. every psychoanalysis is different, but you still know that there are going to be moments of disillusion. And also the fact that it is something that is against the cultural tendencies. So you need to warn people that they will face something that is very different from everything that is pretty much pleasure principle oriented around them. And I yeah. feel like the second session and mm -hmm. the following ones, but especially the second session, carries a lot of that tension. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people are not educated about what psychoanalysis is today. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's, and it's much less known these days than So if you don't educate them, you might create unnecessary anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, if we want to develop the therapeutic alliance, it means that we will have to walk the journey at the pace that the patient is able to walk it. Mm -hmm. Meaning we need to allow ourselves to express again and again, you know, this is what the process is all about. Understanding the shame or the embarrassment, conveying the message that the experience in the room is completely different to the experience of talking to friends and relatives outside the room. Mm -hmm. That takes time to be internalized. I want to go back to the fact that an argument is often made by uh, older practitioners that you shouldn't have to explain the frame, that you should just let people come and let things happen organically. I don't think there is such a thing as an organic development. I think it's always context sensitive mm -hmm. and If today you behave with your patients the same way you behave with them 30 years ago, you are actually not keeping track of what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. And you will understand as defenses what actually is just ignorance or lack of preparation. Because if you grew up in a society where psychoanalysis was mainstream, explain, legitimate, mm -hmm you will face a psychoanalyst in a very different way than if you grew up in a society where psychoanalysis is pretty much unknown. Correct. 
So this is not about resistance to the treatment, but it's about knowledge. Yeah, uh, there is always resistance to the treatment. From the beginning but, on but to the end. But there is also a lack of knowledge, simply because the society doesn't provide that knowledge anymore. To make things a little bit more difficult, those who are ambivalent about psychoanalysis mm -hmm. may struggle during the second session and moving forward. They would but like to try psychoanalysis. But you see, to talk about being mm -hmm. people ambivalent about psychoanalysis means that they would know about psychoanalysis and most of our patients have no idea and if they have an idea it's usually what's spoken or expressed out there which is demeaning to psychoanalysis which makes even more surprising that they want to ex go through the experience mm -hmm. I had a simple image I wanted to share with our listeners the beginning of therapy can be uh, just like the big bang is at the beginning everything is there in the session at the same time mm -hmm. and it's very hot everything yeah. is confused uh, but you can feel the energy and then there's an explosion which is the end of the first session which mm -hmm. leads to the second session and the following ones where it's just the expansion all of a sudden things are cold you are lost there's a lot of space you don't know what to do with it yeah everything seems to be diffuse yeah um, you don't know how to connect the dots let's talk now about how we introduce the second session One way I found to break the ice during the second session is actually to ask my patients how they experienced the first session. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, it makes a bridge between the first and second session and it uh, allows a patient to be the center of the experience. And to illustrate right away that this is how it's going to work. Yes. You are going to talk to me about whatever you experienced mm -hmm. and it includes what we experience here. Mm -hmm. And I think the way I will react to what they say will also illustrate for them how I will react to more of what they can say. You know, if they want to be critical of the first session, how am I going to react to that? Mm. Because, you know, I encourage my patients to be critical of the therapy itself. And so mm. once you encourage your patients to do so, then you have to uh, be true to your words. And as soon as they start criticizing it, you have to take it and not throw it back at them talking about resistances and things like that. <laughs> that yes. They are the ones who don't <laughs> understand anything, etc. You have to be honest and keep in mind that even yourself as an analyst, you stay an incomplete subject and that um, you don't control everything. You're not the all-powerful analyst that ego psychology thought could exist or wanted mm. to make people believe it could exist. You are, in, uh, really, I think that's um, something Lacan um, had right. You are a subject who's supposed to know. It's from the patient's eyes you are supposed to know. But if you identify with this subject who knows, you're lost. There's no analysis anymore. It's already written. Let's talk now about our investment on patients after the second session. So when the patient leaves your office after the second session, what stays with you usually? That's actually something that changed through time. Uh -huh. I think, if I remember correctly, when I first started seeing patients, I already started thinking very far ahead. Uh -huh. I would, back then, try to extrapolate what I experienced Correct. and see, okay, so the therapy is probably going to go this way or this way, and I'm going to do this and that, etc. And this might happen, this might not happen. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I let go of that. Yeah. yeah. I realized that there was no point to that first because even if someone comes twice, it's very unclear whether or not they're going to stay. 
No. I learn to invest my patient in a different way. Many patients are not going to stay patients. Mm-hmm. I think I realized that there was no point in me over-investing them, that it wasn't helping most of them. I think it helped some, but most of them, it, it didn't help. Also, I was doing more work for them, which again helped some, but at a very high price for me. Mm-hmm. And I think on the long run, it wasn't very good for them because they got used to me doing a lot of work. I was being too maternal in some ways. Okay. And Providing uh, the good enough environment for them? Trying too much to help. To help. Uh, to, to yeah. put it very simply. Yes. I stepped back from it. Mm-hmm. I'm actually using the first few sessions, I would say four or five, to actually ponder whether or not uh, the person I have in front of me is going to become a patient. So you're raising the fundamental question of when a person we're seeing becomes a patient. I don't think there is one answer only. Mm-hmm. certainly depends on each patient. But from my clinical stand, I move from, okay, I know someone is interested in therapy. That's my patient. It's going to last uh, X years to, okay, I've seen this person four or five times now. And it seems like it's taking off. But not before. When I see someone for the first time and second time, clearly I want to know about them. I want to hear what they have to say. I try to think about what's going on for them. But on the other hand, I'm not artificially, I would say, attached anymore. Okay. What you're saying ties to what you mentioned last time we were talking about patients in terms of the fee. What yeah. I mean is that you give exactly. yourself at least four sessions or so yeah. before you establish a fee. Yes. So you get a better sense of who is this person in front of you. You're right. Now I remember that I was in supervision with my first supervisor. He would always tell me, patience, patience, meaning I have you to have be... You have to p- wait. <laughs> you have to wait. <laughs> But you also have to be... I think you see that's interesting because both in French and English, the term patient has at least two meanings. Yes. To wait and to be a patient. To be a patient. And I think... We have to wait, but we also have to somewhat remember our experience as patients. Mm-hmm. Some people say that we should not identify with our patient in that way, that we are the analyst and that it is uh, fundamentally different. And I disagree. I think it was Racker who, um, during one conference, had, uh, someone told him, oh, you see, it's so wonderful to see so many psychoanalysts together in the same room and... He apparently reacted by saying the most important thing is how many patients are there. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's extremely important to keep in mind our experience as patients. If we only identify ourselves as an analyst, we are losing track of something of a position that we had and think we lose track of some necessary humanity. Mm-hmm. On my side, I don't think I have a clear understanding when an individual becomes my patient. But what is clear to me is what I learned from my first supervisor, just mm-hmm. to be patient. Yeah. And something will unfold. You probably understand that after the fact. I don't think you have to be patient all the time. I think you certainly have to be confrontational from time to time. But you certainly have to be patient during the first few sessions. Mm-hmm. I find it sometimes difficult because it is the moment where patients are providing the most information. Correct. 
And yet it is the moment where the patients are the less available to hear what they're saying. So you hear a lot of things mm -hmm. which you could interpret right away or in an unuseful way, but intellectually you certainly have a, a lot of associations coming in your yes. mind. But if you mention them, you are at the risk of destroying the foundation of the work by creating something of a very violent confrontation for yes. the patient of what is said but unknown. Correct. So at those moments, you certainly have to be patient. An interpretation that comes to soon forecloses the therapy. It may create a wall. About patients who keep being embarrassed, my experience is that I keep reminding them of the frame until their embarrassment can be understood in a clinical way. It doesn't mean I systematically remind them of the frame, but you want to say something not so that they hear the rule, but that eventually they can hear that they couldn't hear it. It's a bit tricky. I would not necessarily recommend everybody to do that. And I don't do that with every patient. But there are certainly some with whom I, on a regular basis, keep saying, you know, you can say everything you want. You know, you can talk about anything that comes to mind. Because I really believe that they are so removed that if you just let them, it's going to be an abandonment that won't be processable. Okay. But one day they will hear it. And then the question of the abandonment, I believe, will be something that can be processed. To say it in different words is about how available are you to your patients? Meaning if I don't say something or if I say something might be construed as abandonment or not. Yeah, something mm -hmm. like that. For some, I think to remind them of the frame is actually holding them. Holding them while others may experience it as intrusive. Yeah, and so you feel yeah. it and you just yes, stop. Let's talk now about how our needs play out during the first few sessions. So both of us play by ear during those sessions. We're yeah. trying to gauge how much we can say or how little we say. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin is our counter-transference. What if I don't engage this patient as soon as possible? Yes. And then I'll leave the, pa uh, the, oh, I'll leave the patient. Oh, that was an inter interesting slip. The patient will leave us. <laughs> But you will leave the patient also in a sense that you won't be able to engage. Correct. So it's an is interesting this, slip. Are we going to be together or not? Or not. So that comes from both sides of the diet. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, we need to be aware conscious that this is also a way of having an income. There might be a fear that if we don't have this patient with us, we have failed. And of course, we may experience a loss of income and all of that. I think there is a certainly a question of income. Yes. I mean, it's not might. Uh, as long as you don't have a stable group of patients who are providing you with enough income and you don't have another source of income, you are afraid Yes. You're afraid because it's not just a fantasy. When the money is missing, we are going to over-invest the money. There is a reality to the money. The fact that we live in a society where if you rent or you own a place, if you don't pay monthly for the place, you, uh, you're going to be in problem. <laughs> And it's not going to be just your fantasy. Yes, it's not a fantasy. It's, it's, uh, so especially when you begin uh, and w or, or when you are at the point where the group of patients is unstable and your incomes are therefore unstable, you will fear that you're not doing enough very quickly and you will force the engagement you will be over present because you want to make sure that the patient feels like they have their money worth i think something like that correct i think it really talks about us more than talks about the patient in those moments mm -hmm. i mean 
Well, it's not systematic. The, 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 of course, there are some patients who we, after the session, we are shocked by how invested we were for no reason. Mm -hmm. And later on, we will realize that we were actually reacting in the cototransference. Correct. But I would say that the reality of money can certainly during the first few sessions make us especially tense. It's a tension that will come back from time to time, especially, I mean, we discussed it during the first podcast, especially if you overcharge a patient and then you become too dependent very quickly and for a long time you're going to be nervous about losing them that's on the other hand mistake. if you charge too little and then you're afraid you will resent the patient yeah if you want more about that uh, we invite you to listen to, go to, to the, the first, first podcast, podcast on the fee determination <laughs> process To conclude with the second session and the following ones, what do we do when a patient confuses psychoanalysis with scotching or something alike? How do you react, Edgar? If I consider it therapeutically appropriate, I may go back to my image of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. so I will acknowledge what the patient is asking from me. That would be the tip of the iceberg. The patient is asking guidance. The patient is asking for advice. I would not interpret that in terms of the mm -hmm. inner dynamics. And then I will go to the image of the iceberg and say, you know, and at the same time, we want to go deeper into what it means for you that I give you what you're asking. Yeah, I think um, that is a trap. It's difficult not to fall in, especially when you are facing such patients. You indeed have to hear the anxiety that comes yes. from it. Yeah. I think my reaction in those situations is to, to try to go on a very slippery slope path. I don't know if that's a good expression. I think it's people a, get the idea. Yeah. Is that I try to, at the same time, answer questions and not answering them. Usually it becomes something like patient asks, so what should I do? And, uh -huh. I, and I say, well, what do you think you could do? Oh, that's not enough. Uh, you have to help me more. Okay, so I say, give, give me a few examples of what do you have in mind? Uh -huh. and, and then I will try to say, okay, so okay, so you would want to do that. And how do you feel about that? What, uh, what do you think is going to happen? And I try to say, okay, let's say you do that. And now what? And I try to engage them in a well, reflexive way. Yeah, you're exploring the, the fantasy. Yeah. But still, it's still I, you're I giving them the question. Yes, you are I'm engaging. Not saying no no question just you okay. that i think that would lead those patients into a state of uh, sideration in some way mm -hmm. because of course the question is not just a question the, the question is the top of the iceberg yeah also what i tend to say is when they say what should i do what should i do is maybe you should do what you think is the best where mm -hmm. you will feel that you are betraying yourself the less Mm -hmm. It is taking a stand because it is in some ways such an advice with shortcut masochistic tendencies. Mm -hmm. But then if the masochistic tendencies are there, they are whatever kind of tendencies are already present, they will express themselves. Mm -hmm. And your advice is actually more like an illusion. And I think that's where I find solace is that I know that my answers are in some ways worthless. So I try to answer something so that the connection is kept alive, alive. but also something that will not block them too much. Mm -hmm. Because if your advice, in quote, have an effect, most of the time it's going to be negative because it's an imposition in some ways. It will turn against you at some point in the therapy. Yeah. What I say usually to my patient is, I would say what my own analyst in France told me once is, try and tell me. Mm -hmm. 
There are other types of patients who are so overwhelmed by what they are facing, and they are asking us to give us something that will be kind of a miracle, something that will change the overwhelming anxiety they are experiencing or the overwhelming sadness. In those cases, I definitely stay away from advice. Yeah, I think my role there is to help the patient be contained. I agree. That they won't fall apart. Because that's what sometimes they feel. Don't you find that usually in, in such situation when you actually point that to or ask your patient, what, what would you want to do? Uh-huh. They do actually have something in mind. It's just that they're too afraid of what it would mean. It's the sense that what they can offer creates some anxiety at the same time. So the Yeah, you have to contain that anxiety. You have to contain the anxiety first, I think, or at least that has been my experience with the most overwhelmed patients. Yeah that at least if they hear that I know in the experience of the room that they are overwhelmed, for some of them has been the first experience of someone saying, this is rough, yes. or whatever words I use to convey that. And I guess if we survive the first few sessions like that, then things usually get better. That's what we hope. Yes. Well, this concludes our podcast on second session and the following ones. And we hope to see you again when we have another installment of this series of podcasts on Endings of Therapy. Until then, we hope to hear from you through SoundCloud, Twitter and Facebook or directly through the email discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. The links are going to be in the podcast descriptions. If you want to support us, please give us five stars on iTunes. Bye-bye.